Welcome to The Art of Place, a podcast with a penchant for examining art within the time and place of its inception, whether that be a backyard, a bordello, a cathedral, or a cave. Let me introduce you to our hosts. My mom, Dr. Kelly Dollar, a history nerd and a Montessorian. And my mom, Janie Karp, an art therapist and Montessorian. Together they fuse the left brain and the right brain. And now, Art of Place. Janie, we're back. I've missed this so much. Me too. I really have. I wish our friends could see our studio uh yeah it, it, for yeah it's a, quite the studio it is uh but we were laughing earlier because i uh, it re- i require lots of electronic devices to record there's four that i see yes uh whereas my my good friend janie requires some paper paper and a, <laughs> a gel pen and a staple <laughs> a staple paper so it's, yeah here's Old the school. paper kids uh, it's me it it's is me not me rustling that paper but i've i've missed this i've missed the i've just missed the camaraderie and the fun that we have doing this and um you know this has become a, a really important endeavor for me and i'm so mm-hmm. thankful to do it with you mm-hmm. so i'm glad we're back i said to you earlier my life is richer because oh, we're doing this you True. know I'm glad True. we're back in my studio. Me too. <laughs> it's a beautiful it's studio. Thank you. Uh, maybe one day we'll talk more about that. Uh, we want to go ahead and invite our listeners to follow along with us on our Instagram account, Art of Place Podcast. On our Instagram, you can find links related to the show as well as images of both the artist and the art which we discuss. And today, I picked this artist. Mm-hmm. I picked Kati Kovitz. Okay. I picked her because... I love the pure expression of emotion in her art. That was what I was first drawn to. I literally stopped in my tracks the first time I saw her art. It was so communicative mm-hmm. and expressive. Mm-hmm. And that and I immediately, I don't know who this person is, but I love her work. Okay. And our format is that we choose our favorite artists. Yes. So, and so, and so. for our listeners, mm-hmm. this is what we do. So we we take turns and one of us is, is the lead uh, and we, we give each other notes and advice and the research that we've provided. And then uh, on the weeks, so this is Janie's choice. I did research in my own background and I follow her lead. Mm-hmm. And then the next would be my choice. That's right. So we, I think that's fun too because too. I'm learning more about what you like. And, and I'm learning what you like. Yeah. Okay. So it's pretty great, actually. And we're looking into artists that neither one of us would have looked into on our own. So I agree. I, I love that part. So Kati Kovitz, German mm-hmm. expressionist artist. She was known for bereaved mothers, sick children, mm-hmm. people that are dying, oh, so people fun. that are grieving, the suffering and death. Mm-hmm. Her work is really heavy. Yeah. Do we tell our listeners to get a glass of wine and a Xanax? Oh, <laughs> please, if you the, haven't already, hey, get stop. a glass of wine. <laughs> or maybe don't get a glass okay, of wine. Okay, that's maybe right. Maybe don't. <laughs> some, some uplifting essential something oil. Something. <laughs> Light that citrus candle. There you go. There you go. Her work is really heavy. Mm-hmm. Heavy. But I loved how the art history babes described it. Mm-hmm. They said it was heavy as in rich okay and i like to think of it like dark chocolate cheesecake Mm. rich or 
half and half in my coffee. Okay. You know, really rich. Like none of that like skim milk stuff. We're going to have half and half. It's for the sissies. That's right. So this is rich, dense Mm -hmm. art. Mm -hmm. What kind of just dessert? That's what it is. What kind of dessert best describes you? If I were a dessert? Yeah. I'm a cannoli. (laughs) I am a cannoli. I love cannoli. (laughs) I am a dark chocolate dipped cannoli with those little chocolate chips on the ends. Uh, And, you know, it reminds me also of my favorite quote from the Godfather. Uh, They say, leave the gun, take the cannoli. Great advice. (laughs) I love it. Always take the cannoli. Always. That's right. Don't leave that cannoli behind. What kind of dessert are you? Well, I thought a lot about it, and I landed on lemon bars. Oof. Oh, mm. I honestly, I love them. Mm-hmm. But you never know how sweet or how tart they're going to mm-hmm. be, mm-hmm. and they're kind of a surprise that way. You never quite know, and not everyone likes them. Mm. Um, you know, they're but straightforward. It's lemon. Because, do you like the kind of lemon bar that, like, when you're eating it, it's like, like you know, it's like limp and mushy and falling apart in your hand. You just have to, you know, eat it like that. <laughs> yes. That's the kind I like. Yes. Don't be, don't be putting your dry lemon bar over here. <laughs> I know, right? Now, uh, yes. I yes. like the mushy one. It comes mm-hmm. out and it's like all gooey. And, and it, it tickles the back Ooh. of your jaw back there when you, it's so, mm, mm-hmm. yeah, perfect. That's Delicious. Yeah. Yep. So that's oh. me. That's me. Okay. Send us your lemon yep. bars. Yes, please do. <laughs> we accept cannolis as well. Cannoli's also acceptable <laughs> payment. That's right. <laughs> she was so good at expressing universal emotions, mm-hmm. especially difficult ones, ones that we don't really want to look at. Mm-hmm. Um, and she kind of, when I mentioned, let's do cup to call vets, you said, oh, sad Kathy. Yes. <laughs> I was not excited. <laughs> and she's known for being sad Kathy. Uh, <laughs> or Kate in, in our yeah. language is Kathy. But German friends don't judge us. Please right. don't. We're not doing today. our best. We're doing our best. Um, so there, I did a lot of research in her and her mm-hmm. life. And part of it is I really adore her so much. I want to do this perfectly. Right. So I'm trying to let go a little bit of that perfection yeah. and just give the gist of it out there. Um, and I may leave something important out, but man, it this is good stuff. And you know, we're, we're doing our best. Uh, a lot of the art that we look at, obviously, is, is foreign. Mm. And I don't speak German. I took Russian in high school. Did you oh. take a language? Uh, I took some Italian in college. Okay, so mm-hmm. we haven't we haven't hacked those up yet. <laughs> However, I mean German is a, a challenging language, mm-hmm. and obviously we live in Tennessee. But you're from Arkansas, and I am from Alabama. Alabama. <laughs> so it it can be challenging at times, even though we practice and we we read it, and we it's it's a challenge. So mm-hmm. please, but friends, it's worth it. It's it worth is. It. So don't don't. So judge. hang in there with us. We're gonna do our best. Yes. Absolutely. So I found in my research that Kate may have experienced anxiety when she was a child. Mm -hmm. So, um, and that she suffered a long period of depression after the death of her younger son. Really, who wouldn't? I mean, Mm -hmm. he was very young, not even 20 yet Mm -hmm. when he died. And I really think of her as an empath, uh, one who felt the emotions of individuals and of people at large she felt the emotions of everyone and she put it into her art that was her way of expressing it so um i found a quote 
from her, it is my duty to voice the sufferings of people, the sufferings that never end and are as big as mountains. You know, I, I do think that empathic people carry a weight or a burden. I think my own child is a very empathic person. You know, when we mm-hmm. travel, we have to give him like a, a roll of uh, $1 bills so that he can decide who to give those to. I, I kid you not, when we go to New Orleans, we say, you know, you're going to have $20, you know, and you can decide who you're going to give it to, who you're going to tip. You know, he loves a good busker. I don't know if you know that. <laughs> but we learned early on that if we didn't tell him this is how much you have and this is how much you get, he thought that we could just give to everyone. I mean, you can't, mm-hmm. you know, obviously. But I think empathic people tend to personally take on the strife of others. Mm-hmm. Well, you feel it. Yes. I'm one of those people and I, I feel it. I walk mm. into a room and I can feel everyone's anxiety. I can feel if somebody's just had a fight. I can feel it. Mm. So I get it. And yeah. I think it's really healthy to express that instead of keep it bottled up. Well, so. as we talked about, I, I really struggled with this artist. I, I struggle with Colvitz. Uh, but I've come to a, a beautiful realization as well. And what is that? Uh, what I have found is that, you know, her art, obviously, what she liked to focus on was, was suffering, death, um, poverty. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think the reason her art is so difficult for us to look at is because as a culture, we we tend to hold death mm-hmm. at arm's length. We do. And um, we rarely see death in its natural state. Mm-hmm. And we tend to overly sanitize death. Um, we're obviously living in a, in a different time right now and, and people that are passing away from, from COVID, they're getting a, a more natural burial because people aren't having visitations. You know, it's, you have 24 hours, um, at least from you know, the, the experience I have with some of my friends who've had loved ones that have passed is they had 24 hours to complete their burial. There wow. was no visit. I yeah. didn't know that. Yes. Because they can't risk bringing sure. it in, you know, um, and, and right. you know, anyway, that's kind of morbid, but we do tend to overly sanitize death. Like I said, we, we hold it away from us, but it, in times, obviously before COVID, when you would go to a funeral home, really what we do there is we're trying to hang on to that last bit of life. And make the, the body ease into the yes. grief. But, you know, we rarely see death in its natural state. And mm-hmm. I, I don't know that, that I want to see death in its natural state. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think that's why it's so difficult for us is because it is very emotional. And we tend to avoid that emotion. But here's what I've learned about Kate. She is someone that demands that we look. Mm-hmm. That we take note. And that we register that emotion. Horror is difficult because it is genuine, because it is raw, and she brilliantly captures life at its most vulnerable. Beautifully said. Thank you. Thank you. That was. Does it mean that I like want to hang a dead baby on the wall? Agreed. (laughs) Agreed. I mean, but but it is. It is. It is beautiful because she evokes yes an emotion in us that is difficult. It's very strongly. Yes, yes, exactly. Well, she had a lot of accomplishments and honors. So forgive me while I kind of re- read a little list okay. here because it was a lot. I couldn't keep it all, you know, in a line in my head. Well, the first and the biggest to me is that she established herself in an art world dominated by men. And she did this by depicting women and working class people. 
that was kind of her thing. And she was the first woman to be elected to the Prussian Academy of Arts and received the honorary professor status. Mm -hmm. She was the first woman to be a full professor and member of the Berlin Academy of Art. That is very impressive. I'm sure. She was nominated for a gold medal, but the German Emperor Kaiser Wilhelm. Yeah, did I say it right? Yeah, well, you have to say these German names with some this gusto. Yeah, yeah, with a little bit of, with like a little villainous. Okay. Wilhelm. (laughs) Okay. Schnell. You know. Kaiser Wilhelm. Kaiser Wilhelm. (laughs) Yeah, I'm sorry. He refused to approve her for the honor, saying a medal for a woman that would be going too far. Orders and medals. Of honor belong on the breasts of worthy men. What did he say? Worthy men. No. Mm-hmm. He did. Uh, I think it's time for us to get in our little time machine. <laughs> go back in time. Yeah. There's a, a few people <laughs> that I want to throat punch. And uh, Kaiser Bill Hyman's one. There you go. Yeah, I give you a little throat punch. Get back in my time machine. Well, Kate didn't do that. Or at least no. there's no, no record she of it. Was she was cla- graceful. Classier than I am. Yeah. yeah. I don't mm-hmm. know. But she, she just <laughs> did, didn't rise to the bait there. Uh, more than 30... 40, there you go, 40, 40, 40, <laughs> 40 German schools are named after Kovitz. Mm-hmm. A statue of her has stood in Kovitzplatz, Berlin since 1960. Four museums in Berlin, Berlin, Cologne, only I learned it as Köln, Köln, Köln. Berlin, Köln, and Mortsburg, and the Kovitz Museum in Cochlear mm. are dedicated solely to her work. So she has four museums that all that's in there is her work. That's beautiful. And a lot of her work was destroyed. Right. During, during the war. war. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So she was a very prolific artist. Yeah. Absolutely. The Kate Kovitz Prize, established in 1960, is named after her. And there's dances for Kate Kovitz. A suite of dances choreographed and performed in her honor. Mm-hmm. So she impacted the people around her at the time and also mm-hmm. later. Well, and you know, one of the things that we've talked about is that expressionism was not limited to art. Mm-hmm. It, um, it influenced um, literature. It influenced poetry. Absolutely. It, and, and, and dance as well yes. and so there was this entire dance movement inspired by expressionism will you explain a little bit of, <laughs> about um about that in germany and just how those dancers tended to adopt um some of kate's style of expressionism in their dance well i can do my best okay I mean, it's, it's, <laughs> it's a challenge yes it is yeah um i can see that she really preferred doing uh as her subjects in her art, mm-hmm. working class people and dancers were working class people. Right. And, um, or at least that's my understanding. Mm-hmm. I could be wrong. You're the historian. And um, part of it is that their clothing was looser mm-hmm. and less restrictive so that she could actually see the body movement, mm-hmm. which inspired her as an artist. Mm-hmm. So you have to see the body in order right. to be able to draw it. Right. So and that may be part of it. One of the things we talked about, obviously, was that, you know, the Victorian era had just ended. And we were talking about the, the working class people. They're not 
the ones wearing those whalebone corsets. Right. They're not the ones that are walking around this very straight lace, straight back, high hair with lots of pins. And um, when I say pins, I'm talking about hair that's pinned and very tightly coiled. Or, you know, they wore a lot of uh, tight French twists with hair coming out of that. Maybe, did they do wigs or was that? No, that, no, no, this was all there. No. Okay. Mm -hmm. So getting your hair done. Yeah. Deal, if huh? you had ever seen like a Victorian lady take her hair down, it's phenomenal. Like, I mean, truly at the waist and you got to think she's got all that pinned up so tightly. I mean, we, exactly what I was going to say. It, yeah. It's a, it's a very laborious look to be a lady um, in that time. Obviously, and the clothing was very restrictive. You know, we're talking about little boots that you had to have a little tool to even button your boots. You know, uh, high lace, over the ankle, heavy stockings. Um, you know, even the underwear is, the, to me, I think they called them knickers or they're very like those those blue sign looking elasticized at the knee type of thing. It's, it's a lot of layers. It's a lot of... Um, confinement mm -hmm. restriction yeah and it doesn't look comfortable yeah yeah and so obviously working class women uh they had to be able to get down on their hands and knees and scrub those floors they had to be able to you know every day they're putting new fires in the master's fireplaces they're they're in the kitchens they're in the gardens you know they're the nannies chasing the children while the lady of the house is drinking tea and so i could see that I could see how expressionism and that emotion and that freedom would really um, be attractive mm -hmm. for Cate to paint and also for dancers to dance. Mm -hmm. Because, you know, obviously, I wouldn't want to walk around in one of those corsets. Sure. I mean, I could probably use a little nip and tuck, but, yeah. you know, I, I just don't see that as... as um, I don't know. It's very restrictive. So how could you create art that was, it seems restrictive. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Right. So she's the one she's, she looked at how the physicality of the mm -hmm. actual person worked. Mm -hmm. And one of the and, things that you shared with me was that Caute's work was not in sync with the visual trends in art at that time. That's right. Yeah. She was more in responsive to her culture that she was living in. Right. Um, rather than trying to make a name for herself or even interacting a whole lot some but not a whole lot with um, other artists mm -hmm. to um, let it's almost like there was a group of folks that sat around drinking drinking coffee mm -hmm. and deciding what intellectual thing they were going to do next, in their the next art. and it became so intellectual mm -hmm. and she was not about that she right. was about being in your body and expressing the emotion again genuine Raw emotion. Yes. Love it. Give us a little history about Kate. Okay. She was born in the Prussian city of Konigsberg, mm -hmm. which is now Kaliningrad, Russia, in 1867. And during her childhood, she was influenced by her radical social democrat parents mm -hmm. and her excommunicated Lutheran pastor grandfather. How do you get excommunicated from a Lutheran know. church? Are you Catholic? Is that how? Maybe. Yeah. That would do it. I'm not exactly sure how that happened. Okay. <laughs> but um, he, he, her grandfather especially gave her lots of lessons in religion and socialism. Mm -hmm. And her religious training appears later in her artwork as uh, a part of her compositions. Mm -hmm. You see a real nod to the Pieta, 
or classic formations. Mm-hmm. And um, I, it must have been a very thorough education and not just concept, conceptual. And so, obviously, you know, this, this is one of the things that we explore in our research is, you know, and you and I work with children, obviously. Yes. We're mm-hmm. at a, a, a K-8 Montessori school. And so you and I, we understand the importance of, you know, instilling in a child to like look for those talents, look for those aspirations and, and kind of nurturing those in a child. Right. Uh-huh. And not that is not how uh, child rearing has always been viewed, obviously. Oh, yes. But Kate's uh, father saw this in her. He saw this, this, um, this ability or this skill in her or this desire to create. And so he arranged for her very early on to start having lessons in both drawing and copying plaster casts. And she was just 12. My 10 year old cannot go copy a plaster. Maybe he can. I don't know that maybe he can. Um, can. He's got a good art teacher. Oh, he does. (laughs) (laughs) At 16, uh, she was already drawing the working people. She really enjoyed them. And she's um, sailors peasants and she's drawing them in this style of, of realism which developmentally is appropriate right at that age they want to do realism they yes. want to picture everything just like the sea exactly it's appropriate uh and then from there she attended art school and she was in school in berlin and she found a great deal of inspiration in the work of artist max Klinger, uh, whose techniques and social concerns were very influential on a young woman and in her growth as a young artist and by age 17, she was engaged mm-hmm. to Carl Kovitz, a medical student. And she married him in 1891 when she was only 24. Mm-hmm. And you said you had read something about her dad at that point? Yeah, so this is interesting. Um, sh- they wanted to marry much sooner than they did because she mm-hmm. met him while he was a student. And I don't know if her father was protecting Kate or looking out for the best interest of them as a married couple. I, I don't know. But what we do know is this, that her father said, I, I don't approve of this marriage until he has completed his medical training. Mm-hmm. And they respected that. And they continued to, you know, be a young couple. But she remained in her father's home and didn't marry him until he finished medical school. Look at that. Yeah. That's interesting, especially how much she kind of buck the trends, if you right. will, that she... Um, respected her father's wishes and did that that's interesting there he was um you know by 24 he was a doctor he served the working poor and the people when they came to see him um she would draw their picture and i I don't i was trying to envision how this worked uh did they come in and she would say while you're waiting can i draw your portrait well how did that work okay so this is just me being assumptive Okay. okay, try it. All right, I'm going to be a little sumptive here. You know what you do when you yeah, assume. I, I know, Ooh, right? Okay. Uh, I Because what we do know about her husband's work is that he worked in an early phase of what we would call a social medicine. Mm-hmm. And so like free clinic. Mm-hmm. And a great deal of their patients would have been dependent on that limited type of health care. Right. And obviously someone that works in free clinics, uh, very respectable. He's still a physician, but the people they encounter are the working class people, the people that are working poor. Yeah. The working Mm -hmm. poor. Right. And obviously they're going to have, um, poor nutrition and, and health care that's very limited and just not as much access to healthy lifestyles. Mm -hmm. Um, and what we know is that 
they had an apartment mm -hmm. that was um, in the same building with his clinic. And so their life was their work and yes. they lived where he worked. And I think like her general nature, I think she was probably in ways helping her husband mm -hmm. in his work, you mm -hmm. know, maybe greeting patients or uh, we know that she had children of her own. Maybe her children played with the, the people that were waiting patients, children. And I think again, assuming, I think she kind of won them. Like, you know, mm -hmm. this is a safe place. Right. Uh, not only do, does my husband care for you, I care for you. My children can play with your children because they are not from the same class. Right. And like you said, they're not the same social strata as these people. And I'm sure that the patients that came in to see them maybe had reservations or mm -hmm. maybe had these feelings of inferiority. And I think she broke those walls down. Mm -hmm. And I think, again, being assumptive, that she was able to say, may I draw you or may I draw our children? And yeah. I think that she had already won them. Who in that doesn't way. want a picture of your oh exactly kids yeah or yourself? I mean, but that's just do. my assumption I about. Think, thank you for that. Right. I think yeah. that's a beautiful way to think of it. So so do we, I have a quote that you gave okay. to me about her choice of um of, about her subjects. Um, let me pull that up and so we can share that with you. She said. The motifs I was able to select from this melu, the workers' lives, offered me in a simple and forthright way what I discovered to be beautiful. People from the bourgeoisie sphere were all together without appeal or interest. A middle-class life seemed pedantic to me. On the other hand, I felt the proletariat had guts. It was not until much later when I got to know the women who would come to my husband for help and incidentally also to me that I was powerfully moved by the fate of the proletariat and everything connected with its way of life. But what I would like to emphasize once more is that compassion and commiseration were at first of very little importance in attracting me to the representation of proletarian life. What mattered was simply that I found it beautiful. Spoken like a true artist. Yes. And so I find that uh, as someone that would not um, necessarily find her work comforting, uh, and it would also, it, you know, I find it quizzical. Like, why would you want to draw this? It's so sad. She's saying, it's not their misery. It's not the commiseration. I'm not trying to monopolize. Or she wasn't initially. Right, yeah. right. But she's saying, in, in many ways, she finds the simplicity of their life. That's the beauty. Yeah, the beauty. Right. She finds beauty in them. Right. They are beautiful, truly. So there is a lot more to discuss about Kotikovitz, and we will continue this discussion as we look at some of the key artworks. So just a handful that I picked, mm -hmm. I had to pick it's and choose. Hard. It is. It's the hardest part is picking like which three, four, or five you're going to show. Mm. You also become you seem invested that you feel like you're like you, I want to do my dissertation. Yo, I feel but like we've written each a one. few, a few. Yeah. <laughs> uh, before we take a deep dive into the art today, we want to encourage our listeners to follow along with the images of the art on our Instagram account, Art of Place Podcast. And now, Janie, our podcast is available on lots of other platforms. We're on Google Play, we're on Stitcher, we're on Pocket Cast, we're on Spotify, we're on iTunes. So 
That is so exciting. So, it is. All right. Time so, for that quick break. That's right. Let's take a break. Our first image today is Woman with Dead Child, a 1903 etching. And um, I want to start by describing a little bit about what an etching is. An etching is a plate, like a metal plate. Mm -hmm. And there are a couple of things that can be done. Maybe a ground put on it first, like a uh, like a coat, like gesso or um, a kills when you're going to do your wall. You know, oh yeah, you, know, I know what kills you put a, a foundation on it. It's okay. kind of like that. And then you take a little scratching tools and you scratch into it. You can see the little scratches mm -hmm. on her work. And then you ink that plate with ink all over it. And then you wipe off all the ink except what sticks into the little grooves. Okay. And then you put the paper on it and, and put it in the press. Mm -hmm. And when the paper comes out, you have the print on it. Mm -hmm. That you scratched into everything that you scratched comes out as a positive shape okay. which is kind of different from the other kind of printmaking we talked about one of the things that i learned when i was researching like the the mediums that she chose to work in mm -hmm. which a lot of etchings mm -hmm. um a lot of um lino cut lino 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 cut like linoleum like linoleum mm -hmm. uh and, and drawings just charcoal drawings mm -hmm. um it's because she didn't have a studio not a very big one. That's yeah, right. and, and obviously she's raising two little boys. And yep. so she has to have art that can be done in a small space mm -hmm. and in a small amount of time. Or, or not necessarily a small amount, but it doesn't... A little bit of time, yeah. Yeah, they can do some now, some later, come back. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I've actually read a lot about like what a challenge that was for her as a young mother. Oh, yes. Yeah. Uh, I'm an artist who's also a mother, mm -hmm. and I can assure you <laughs> that it is uh, hard to continue to do your own art um, while you're raising a child. So um, there was something you said about, oh, there was another reason, I think, that she chose prints oh, okay. uh, or printmaking is because she really cared about the people, the uh, working class mm -hmm. people, and she wanted the art to be something they could access they could afford well and you know we talked about you know how prolific she was as an artist and what we know is that she also gave a great deal of her art away mm -hmm. you know yes. works that she was inspired with by maybe a patient or someone else's child we know that she did that and so again you know she could quit create it multiple times over mm -hmm. yes and that's another thing about printmaking is mm -hmm. you just make more you know you make a series print you can do 600 in mm -hmm. a in a, um, a run mm -hmm. so it's kind of like photocopying right right steroids um and now let's look at the actual image okay so i wanted to ease into this one okay because this one's a hard one this yes. is woman with dead child right and this is heavy right i mean you can see the grief in this mm -hmm. woman you can see this beautiful child in her arms she's hunched over in agony um, it reflects the feelings of real people during very difficult times. And here, here it's easy to see the intensity of that emotion, mm -hmm. the disbelief, that grief, you know, that rocking back and forth, mm -hmm. that primal 
Oh, yeah. When you're trying to settle yourself. And it's a soothing and self-soothing. Yes, yes. You know, we have children in our classrooms, obviously, yes. who require that type of self-soothing. Mm-hmm. It is very primal. It is. Yeah. It really and, you is. know, one of the things that I noted about this piece of art is the the face of the mother is almost grotesque with grief mm-hmm. while the child is the image is, is light much more detailed angelic and that's what i was going to say and very oh, it's okay i'm it thinking the same thing yeah um you know it does he looks very much like a little a little cherub in his arm in her arms mm-hmm. and you know she's just I mean, her body, it's almost like his body has become a part of her body, which obviously giving birth a child is a part of your body. But you can just, I can just imagine those hot, salty tears, the skin Mm -hmm. on skin contact there. You can feel Mm -hmm. the agony in this. Yeah. Or I can feel it. I can feel it. It's tangible. Absolutely. Absolutely. You can't help but feel the strong mm-hmm. feelings that mm-hmm. she is experiencing in that image. Mm-hmm. And um, I think this illustrates a couple of things. One is her giftedness and strength as an artist. Right. She can draw or portray. Initially, it all comes down to drawing anything. And lots of artists can depict the likeness of a person or accurately draw mm-hmm. the people or paint the images. But she not only captures that the details that make it look real, if you will, or realistic, um, it's an accurate representation of the form, but she, her work screams strong, painful feelings that cannot be ignored. Mm-hmm. Well, she is the very definition of expressionist art. Yeah, in my that's mind. that's what she does, mm-hmm. you know? she And she does have the talent to, to draw and paint and etch in in realism Mm -hmm. but that's not that wasn't what inspired her what inspired her was that expressionism Mm -hmm. and you and if you don't feel something when you look at Colvitz there must be something dead inside you (laughs) because it's especially as a mother I think you're it's more relatable and in a way that you don't want to know right I don't want to know what this image feels like Mm -hmm. you know looking at it is an is pain enough but imagine feeling that raw pain. I don't want to. I don't want to know. I know. Um, for this piece, this particular one, she used herself and her youngest mm-hmm. son as models. And this is an interesting little thing that came up in my research. Some people uh, commented on this artwork because this is a grieving mother holding a child. And the models were her and right. her son. Some oh. people um, called this a foreshadowing of her own grief and loss and uh, of her son who died when he was 17 and volunteering during the world the war effort in world war war world war one that's a very hard word for me to say just say the great war the great war i'm gonna write that there is a school of thought though that um that might go with this and it i i admit that was my first thought Mm. you know that that kind of well and i see how it's easy to, I always say this to my children, it's easy to look back in time and judge sure, history or exactly, other people. exactly, because our was, perspective is from over here. We as art historians, I'm, I'm saying we, you as an art historian, me as an <laughs> art appreciator. Art. Um, 
it is not a foreshadowing because that is obviously, yes. you know, she had no idea that would happen. I mean, this piece of art occurs when he's a, a little boy. But I did find something really fascinating um, that came from her journals. And what we, you and I have learned about her writings is that her journals were not necessarily diaries. So if I say diaries, please excuse me, but they're more like journals and they were really to inform her art and not meant to be read like a diary. Mm -hmm. They were like her notes on how to make changes. Now, sometimes there were like personal, you know, mm -hmm. um, you know, inflections put in there. But I think for the most part, she considered them more like a journal for her to um, record like thoughts, ideas, and the moment in which she's mm -hmm. creating something. So I found mm -hmm. something um, in one of these journals where she reminisces on the time that she spent with her son, Peter on this drawing. It's very sweet. Okay. It's when he was seven and I was working on the etching woman with dead child. I did a drawing of myself holding him on my arm in front of the mirror. That was very exhausting. And I groaned. And then he said in his little child's voice, stop groaning, mum. It's going to be very beautiful. <laughs> Can't you just hear your little child being like, it's going to be great, mom. And her, she's, you know, she, her arm hurts. She's trying to capture this. You know, she knows that she's probably got to get a loaf of bread in the oven. You know, I mean, life is not easy. And yes. she's just trying to draw this. And to have this just. You know, children just Sweetness. speak the truth. Oh, don't they add a Oh, mom. <laughs> There's nothing better than your child saying, like your encouragement from your own child. But oh, I know. that's what he said to her. And that's what we find in that journal. What is the, what is the next piece we're going to look at today? Well, let me turn my old school paper. <laughs> yep. I know. I know. <laughs> if there's a way to have, you know, a scroll, I probably would. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> let me get you some stone tablets. Okay. We'll chisel those. That would be a great sound <laughs> Oh, our second piece is called The Grieving Parents. Mm -hmm. And it's a memorial to call its son, Peter. Mm -hmm. Okay. Can you say this for me? Yes. Well, I think it sounds German. I mean, not German. I'm sorry, Russian. Um, I think it's Vladslo. Vladslo. Yeah, Vlad. Like it's Vladslo German War Cemetery. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you so much. So. Um, her younger son Peter, as you mentioned, was only 17 when the war began, and this is what what I learned in my research was that he was too young to sign up as a soldier, but he, he qualified to be a volunteer, but he had to get parental permission, and his father said only if your mother agrees, and I I think that. Um, you know, he made this request and Kate, um, she is the one that convinced her husband to let him volunteer. You know, I, we, we know she's a strong nationalist. Uh, obviously she has that upbringing from her grandfather and mm -hmm. her father. Mm -hmm. Um, but unfortunately he enters the war and he dies shortly thereafter. Just a couple, a few uh, months. I mean, yeah, not long at all. Weeks, yeah. weeks after joining. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, and you know, this is an important thing to note because this became a very pivotal point in her life, artistically and right. her life at large. Well, and if we think about the way that she was already drawing, the way that she was already etching, uh, the, all way, the way that she was already carving and doing things, that it was already very deep, very emotional. Mm -hmm. And I mean, at times, to be honest, it's dark. It is. And now 
she experienced this this grief that no mother deserves Agreed. to ever feel. Mm-hmm. So obviously, she, it's, it's going to be, like you said, it's a very pivotal time in her life and in her art. I, actually, you're right. Mm-hmm. And the war that she was initially in favor of right. became the thing that took her son. <sighs> and um, that loss brought about an existential crisis. As, as a mother, I can only imagine that would be the only result Mm -hmm. but it it made the effort of making sense of the war and herself within it arduous but also urgent she had Mm -hmm. to figure out how she was going to be with all of this she had to cope every day the war was going on around her and she had lost her son right away Mm -hmm. lost as in he died not lost as in he's in the dresses right you know at the at the, at at the, the mall. Rosses, uh, at the Rosses. Yeah, uh-huh. I know. I know. Why do boys want to do that? I don't know. Girls do, do too. Do mm-hmm. Oh, my God. Mine it's did. scary to wear. <laughs> I know. Sometimes I would hide in the dress. Ugh. Go ahead. Oh, goodness. I can only imagine. Now, I never found anything in my research that indicated this, but as a mother and an empath, I can only imagine that she felt guilty oh, because obviously. she um, persuaded her husband to approve right. of his involvement in the war effort. That she agreed to let him go i'm sure she did i mean that's part of that process the grieving process anyway and she began a mourning sculpture a, a work that she did that she worked on for three years that she processed her own grief three years seems like not very long time but and she Actually, was, I think it sounds like a really long time. Really? Her child was yeah. 17. No, I mean like to work on one piece of art. Oh, see, I'm thinking, grieving. I'm thinking of it as something she came back to. She would work on it a little oh. bit and then do other stuff and then come back to it and do other stuff. Mm. That's kind of how I do. I think it so. sounds like a long time to well, work through a piece of art that is so painful. But Well, I think she eventually ended up just destroying that. Mm. And I think that was part of her grief, too. Right. Her process, if you will. Mm-hmm. And um, shortly after that, um, she was asked to create a sculpture that would commemorate all um, all the losses from the war. Mm-hmm. And she began working on another sculpture project. And the first one had her, her son, and her husband in it. The one that she did for the commemoration in uh, for the cemetery had just the grieving parents mm-hmm. and um, well you know um, this is why I want to encourage listeners to, to use our Instagram as we're speaking because um, the the memorial that she created obviously was again like we said not the original one and it, this one was more for all of the lost sons of the war right there's an, uh, an original photo that's there on the day that the um, the sculptures were being, I guess, um, dedicated, installed. installed or dedicated, dedicated right, yeah. to the mm-hmm. to the grave sites. Um, and there's a the photo there of of Pate, um leaning up against the sculptures, and then also um, of her husband there beside her and the workers that helped install them. And uh, I I had posted multiple pictures of the the sculptures because there's a lot of symbolism and there's many angles and mm-hmm. I didn't post all of the angles that you can find obviously but there's an angle in particular that I find um, I find if you if you look at the the image uh, from the back of the sculptures mm-hmm. and you're looking out the sculptures 
are looking out over the graves. They are. And you've got two grieving parents, but you've got one with, um, I believe it's the, the mom, maybe with her arms crossed, mm-hmm. maybe praying over all of these graves, but both are kneeling. Yes. So really both could be in prayer. But I like the point of view of the photograph of this one because it's intentional the way that the sculptures were installed mm-hmm. with space for you to stand between them. Yes. And stand and look through the eyes of those sculptures out over the grave sites. So actually enough for two people to stand between them. Oh, very smart. Both parents. Yeah. yeah. Colvitz, um, it, it's it's shortly after the war that she has this paradigm shift uh, from her pre-war to her post, post-war ideas. Prior to the war, uh, she was a self-proclaimed socialist, but not really with a strong political affiliation, but still following, um, obviously, along with, you know, what's happening in, in civics and in government. But shortly after the death of her son and the end of the Great War, we have a Colvitz that becomes a very obvious pacifist. She's changed. Uh, she's going to dedicate the remainder of her life to social justice issues, the poor, and a very strong anti-war sentiment uh, that's a prolific theme in her work. And you know, you have to be really careful about, mm-hmm. I mean, Kate lives through two wars. Mm-hmm. Uh, and she, dies, she does. Yeah, she dies shortly before, uh, during occupied Nazi Germany, uh, right before liberation. Mm-hmm. She does not see the end of the second war. Right. We're gonna talk a little more about Kate and her experience in World War II, but you know, to be an anti-war artist in Germany, that's dangerous. Mm-hmm. It it's was dangerous. dangerous in her time. But a prime example of this work is one that she did with, um, it's like a multi-artist collaboration in 1924 between the two wars to commemorate the 10th anniversary of the Great War. And it depicts two agitated youth with the motto, never war again. Uh, a resonating quote from her journals uh, about these pieces of art that she did for this anniversary reads, Peter, they all devoted their lives to the idea of patriotism. The young men in England, Russia, and France did the same. The result was an impoverished Europe, robbed of its most beautiful people. Was the youth in all these countries deceived? And she wrote that in 1917. So you are going to talk to me. We don't have it on the Instagram yet, but we will have it up there. Mm-hmm. We'll as add a, it. A, yeah, as a singular post, because I think it's really important to talk about it. But, um, and this piece came about in 1941. It's called The Seed Corn Must Not Be Ground. Okay, talk to me about the seed corn image. Well, um, you have the mother. Well, the concept here yes. is that she is holding these children back. Right. No one can have these children. Mm. If you look at her face, she's like, not going to happen. Right. I'm protecting my children. So that's that's what she's depicting and she is saying enough young people have died in this we don't if we kill the rest of our young people we'll all die there will die out there'll be nothing left you can't grind your seed corn well because if you you can eat all the corn but if you grind the seed corn there's nothing after that, har- yeah, there's nothing after that harvest, right? So the young that, people, you cannot grind all the. I think the title is just as powerful yes. as the image. And you and I were talking about this image, and again, we've got this mother's face. It's very distorted. With, I think it's um, 
I don't think this one is grief. I think this face is fear and or like anxiety. Protective. Yeah. She's, she's very, the arms are oh, huge. Oh, yeah. And almost manly. Her, mm -hmm. her arms, um, well, maybe it's that working class washing woman type arm. Yeah. But, uh, you know, she's protecting these children. Um, you know, and you've got two older children that are, their faces are directed out in the same way that her face is. Mm -hmm. Looking to the past. Or looking toward what's coming. Mm. Oh, could be, yes. Yeah, I don't know. But then you have this other child who is much younger, his face more joyful, and you said that he's probably much more innocent or, yeah, or naive, naive, doesn't yeah. know what's doesn't coming. Doesn't quite understand. Yeah, yeah. our children are like that. Mm -hmm. The older they get, now our, the children, children are always very perceptive of your emotion. However, the older they get, the more their understanding becomes solidified in experiences. Mm -hmm. And so... Well said. Thank you. Yeah. Montessori mm -hmm. right there. But I think that the older children here, obviously, not only do they pick up on their mother's fear, but they also have more understanding of yes. what is coming where the they little do. one doesn't. But Well, they um, probably remember their uncle, somebody that died in the war, or their older brother that died in the war, exactly. or their dad that died in the war. Those so, wars are not far apart. There's another interesting thing yeah. here, too. If you look at the shape, oh. you've got a shape of a tomb, a tombstone classic tombstone shape and that's not an accident i'm sure i'm i don't think anything she oh, did no. was accidental everything was purposeful uh, so let's just get right into a, a little more history here obviously hitler's going to come to power in the in the second world war it's coming it's on the horizon and Katte's work um becomes officially banned from public exhibition uh, -huh. uh hitler declares her work degenerate Mm -hmm. And from 1935 until the end of the war, uh, the Third Reich prohibits any of her work from being on public display. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, her, her, I guess her, um, her art is not in public view. So her, her work and her notoriety as an artist is also, it becomes lesser known for quite some time. Mm -hmm. but she doesn't stop producing. Agreed. Mm -hmm. She does not stop producing art. It's just not publicly displayed art. I think they also stripped her of her teaching. Oh yeah, that's right. She lost her professorship. Right. So yeah. she couldn't teach mm -hmm. and uh, influence these young people. You know, and what we know from her journals and from the historical record is that she was approached only once with this notification, which I can only assume was met with an understanding from her, obviously, of the dire consequences of disregarding the demands of the Fjord. So, I mean, it's your life. What notification just to cease and desist? Yes, pretty kind of, much. Mm -hmm. And she, all of her work was, I, I don't think it was necessarily intentionally destroyed, but some of it was obviously destroyed during the war. But, mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah. Um, fun fact, gonna mm -hmm. lighten it up just to okay. a smidge. Um, in 1901 and 1904, Cate traveled to Paris and met the sculptor Rodin. Yeah. Oh. I remember the first time I saw Rodin, it was in Philadelphia, mm -hmm. and I didn't realize, like, if they just leave it outside. Yeah. I think there's uh, Rodin. You know, I was surprised, too, when I figured that out. I was like, what? what? <laughs> Did I just see a Rodin just, <laughs> just there? Hanging out outside. Anyway. Well, okay. There, I, there's there's something, and you mentioned the working class arms. Yes, and they're the, very strong. And the right, hands. Right. After a certain point in her art, everything is condensed, mm -hmm. and she's got... Like we said, everything was meaningful, and the hands are in almost every image. And her 
um, but Rodan, right. he, his work was super realist, super realistic. Okay. So much so that he'd been accused of casting live people to create his sculptures. That sounds dangerous. I know. <laughs> and he, of course, was very offended. Right. Um, but after that criticism, he forever created the hands and feet of his sculptures um, extra large. Oh, good for him. In proportion to the body. I'll show uh, you about Right. Yeah. To prove his prowess as an artist. Okay. And to disprove casting from real people theory. And after Kate met Rodan mm -hmm. and spent some time, I assume, in the coffee shop having some delicious coffee and Talking amazing pastry, I'm sure. Um, his influence in her work began to show in that powerful expressive use of the hand gestures. Mm -hmm. And both in the sculpture and in the print. And the emphasis on those expressive qualities in the hands are clear in the grieving parents mm -hmm. and the woman with dead child. And the, the next piece we're okay. going to talk the, about. The, the next piece. The, the mothers. The yeah. mothers, mm -hmm. yes. And can you talk about the medium sure. here for us? Now say that medium for me. Aww. Okay. It's I'll... like ganache. <laughs> it's, it's lino cut. Uh, remember how you try to teach me to say gouache? I know. Ganache, gouache. It looks yeah. like lino cut, but it's lino cut. It is. But it's you said li say linoleum, Callie. Is because okay. lino cut is literally cutting into linoleum. Okay. It, it's the best thing I have in my head is a linoleum floor and it's right. essentially the same thing. It's smooth linoleum mm -hmm. that you carve into. It's easier to carve and to get fluid lines than wood, which okay. is a woodcut. Remember our friend Durer? Uh, Durer. Durer. Yes. Cutting against the grain. Yes. Yeah, yeah, it's hard. yes, yes. Yeah, yeah. Lino cut is much easier to get the fluid lines okay. uh, because you don't have to deal with the wood grain. And um, so you would cut into it and then you would ink what was left, put the paper over it, pull it up, and everything you had cut would be the color of the paper. I actually did this one time in like maybe high school. I had a great art teacher. Oh, yes, also, you did. Yeah, uh, Miss Graven, thank you so much. But we did this, just learning the process. It wasn't a very good piece of art, but I remember doing it and then making a print and then cutting more out of it and then adding another color. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yes. Yeah, so that's lino cut, and that's what she did. In this image, the mothers, mm -hmm. the emotions are clear and piercing. A minor theme of her collective works is community. You see a lot of people together. Obviously, because I think that was a large part of her life. Of course it was. And her husband's work. And yeah. they may have been middle class, but they were very affected by this war. Mm -hmm. Everybody was. I mean, it just was. And these were people standing together through adversity. This communicates the fierceness of those survivors and how they clung to each other in their grief mm. and fear and watchfulness. Mm -hmm. I, again, you see that that tombs that tomb shape. Oh yeah, yeah. And you know, you and I were talking about this and talking about the medium, but this was a work she did multiple times mm -hmm. in in different types of media. Yeah, really. Yeah, yeah. yeah she did. Um, what strikes you specifically about this image? Oh, well, of course, that first, the, the, the person in the front, at least from the my mother. perspective, this one with this child's face, that really, um, that fear and concern and mm -hmm. worry on that forehead to see oh, a child yeah. with that kind of worry 
marked into their forehead. Mm. It looks like my heart. like cross hatching. Oh, bit. it is. Okay. It is cross hatching. Good job. I know. I'm so I've proud of studying. you. I've been studying. I'm There's impressed. a couple of things that really strike me. One is the child's face looks almost skeletal. Mm, it does. It's really now, this to me is... that's very like foreshadowing of oh, death. Yes. Like, one eye is completely hollowed out, and his nasal cavity doesn't look like a nose. It's a little scary. And then also there are these hands, these strong hands that are pushing back on Ooh, in yeah. this image. Oh yes, I'd never they're these You're big so right. strong hands pushing while the mothers are all hugging, there's also a set of hands pushing out mm -hmm. an unknown object. Mm -hmm. Something yeah. that they're afraid of, obviously. It's and so you know, and I'm we're looking right now at, at a, a drawing Mm -hmm. uh, pen and ink drawing mm -hmm. and that uh, the cross hatching is a little more evident in that oh, one yeah but the actual lintel cut that we are referring to on our instagram same image just yeah. done a different medium has that same skeletal Face. Um, face and the it. hands, mm -hmm. the pushing and hand. the pushing hands. But you're right. When she does it in other medium, it looks a little different because we're looking at another one that's not on our Instagram, but it was like touched with pen and brush. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So I mean, this was obviously a piece that it was probably a study I, uh, for, that she did for her work or therapeutic. You know, yeah, it yes. could be therapeutic. And actually, I think it is because that's 1921 and this is 22 and 23. Interesting. So, um, so that was one she did in preparation okay. of doing this one. So in my research, uh, I, I watched as many documentaries as I could find and I, I read quite a bit. But this print itself, the, the mothers that we're looking at, reminds me a great deal of a bronze casting that Colvitz conceived in 37 or 38. Uh, and she actually, although she made the bronze itself, she never cast it. Right. She just kept it, you know, and it was not was not cast in her lifetime. Mm -hmm. But um, I learned about this bronze from a Canadian news broadcast clip um, that I saw on YouTube. And it had Dr. Brian McCrindle, who's a pediatric cardiologist at the Hospital for Sick Children in Toronto. Now, Dr. McCrindle is an avid collector of Colvitz and since medical school he went to Johns Hopkins and he talks about in this interview that I saw with him that they were able to sit in on classes for free and one of the classes that he chose was 20th century art because he didn't feel like he knew enough about that and so that's where he became um, really more familiar with her work and what she did and then he would go to museums and what free time you have I guess I as a, a medical student um, there's a little a try really hard. There's an afternoon or two, you know. <laughs> but uh, Dr. McCrindle is considered a, a serious collector and a benefactor of Colvitt's work. Um, he not only collects her, her art, but he also collects her papers and other artifacts. Wow. Yeah, he's very interesting. I really, really want to meet this I person. I know. I know you I do. do. I, yes. He seems. Uh, you know, he actually, it was interesting to me to listen to him speak because you're the only person that I've ever known that's like so passionate and enjoys her work. So does he. He's mm -hmm. very, and you know, there, he talks about there are only other, really two other collectors in the world that buy for the same work that he does. And one's another physician, um, I believe in California. And the others are the Colvitz Museums themselves. Yes. But anyway. Dr. Wow. McCrindle, yes. 
So he describes this broadcasting that I mentioned uh, in in the interview that I watched, and the, the work is titled uh, "Term de Mutter." And he explains that when he first saw this work, it's a, it's a large, large bronze that he physically walked around it to fully see the faces on every side uh, and the arms of the mothers and the children. Uh, and he was very emotionally impacted by this piece of art. But to me, what he's describing as this bronze is the 3D version mm-hmm. of this this it could very well be cut that we're talking about yes. you know or it's what you said like a series that she's exploring but mm-hmm. anyway um this casting that uh Dr. McCrindle describes was um cast in 1958 after her death and it recently sold at a Christie's auction for $52,500 Cool. Yeah. Yeah, that's a great price. (laughs) I'll take it. I think that's that's amazing. I would love to be able to walk around that and see. And um, yeah, really would. Going back to Dr. McCrindle, he actually uh, has donated a great deal of his art to, um, I believe it's either Ontario or Toronto. I can't remember. But his work that he, not his work, his collection that he mm-hmm. has donated is, is the foundation of the entire Colvitz collection in that museum. It, yeah. Wow. That's amazing. I love that. I love yes, that. Me too. He sees art as not something to be um, necessarily collected and owned, even though he says he has pieces he's not ready to part with yet. Of course. But it's really to be enjoyed by everyone, which is really what? Kati wanted. Exactly yes. right. All right. We and Dr. McCrindle. Yes. Okay. <laughs> okay. Let's see. Um, I'd like to end on a sweet note. Okay. This really has been heavy. It is. It's and intense. it's really been very rich. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to say that she was more than just the grief and the pain. Right. right. She had a very full, rich life. Mm-hmm. And she did a lot of drawings of. Uh, mothers and children, mm-hmm. the Madonna, if right, you will, right. um, of her life. And there's some beautifully joyful images of mothers and children. Mm-hmm. And these were studies of her and her, her children, and they were her most frequent subjects, but they were there. Right. I mean, you know, and that's very and wonderful. And lots of these are untitled. Mm-hmm. And Just there's actually a, a large collection of these, and we've only posted one on our Instagram account. Um, but there are there are several of these, and so I encourage you to do a little extra research and sure. look at these other images, because I think what she's is proving uh, is that she has a wide range of talent. Mm-hmm. And Colvitz reminds us uh, that she chose which emotion she wanted to convey. Uh, she could, if she wanted to, capture the softer, more joyful moments as well. And it's really a stark contrast um, and really a poignant contrast to that of war. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Do we have just one more minute? Or yeah. Time? Time. Oh, I have this quote from yeah. Clark, Klaus Richter. Yeah. That I wanted to share with you all. Kati Kovitz is a fantastic observer. Her works are so hard while possessing an incredible tenderness. And although this does not seem to be a valid criterion for good art today, I'm always deeply moved by her drawings and sculptures. That word tenderness, mm. I really wanted to point that out because yeah. I feel like that encapsulates 
her work. Yeah, her work. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, Janie, it's that time. Oh, I can't believe it. I this know. has been really great. I've so enjoyed it's talking with one. you. We'd like to thank all of you for joining us today in our exploration um, of Colvitz and her art. Uh, we hope that you will join us again uh, next time as we explore another artist's work and the culture and the geography that informed it on Art of Place. If you've liked what you've heard or you have helpful suggestions, please contact us via Instagram or Twitter, Art of Place Podcast, or you can send us an email, artofplacepodcast at gmail.com. Special thanks to our friend Scott Myatt for his original music. You can hear more of his work at scottmyatt.com. Our podcast is now available on Spotify, iTunes, Pocket Cast, Google Play, and Anchor. Till next time, nerds!